0: This morning we are going to be in Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Revelation 2, starting at verse 18. Follow along as we read God's holy word. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants, to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who com- commit adultery with her I will also throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead." And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep secrets of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him... I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this morning. You don't uh, sugar stuff up. There's no sweet talking. There's no uh, softening us. Your Word cuts like a double-edged sword to our hearts. Lord, I pray for wisdom as uh, I share Your Word with Your people. Lord, give me all wisdom as... As I boldly proclaim, carefully proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that you love your church. This morning, Lord, may we love you, the bride, groom, the husband of your church. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As you look at the American church landscape, and you would say, and I'd do a poll this morning and say, hey, what is, would you say, is the most egregious sin found in the North American church? I would probably get a whole slew of answers. So let's just do a real quick polling. And don't don't try to give me the... Um, don't quick look in and go, okay, what is the answer for today? As you just think about the American church, what would you say, if Jesus is speaking to the American church today, what would be the most egregious, most uh, dastardly of all sins that the American church is committing? False, False teaching. Idolatry. Idolatry. Anyone else? Gossip. Gossip. Hypocrisy, greed, apathy, selfishness, selfishness, self-centered about me, anyone else, lukewarm faith, faith. just so you know, we'll get to Leah to see you later, but just making sure. Well, it's probably a sin this morning that we're going to talk about. A sin that is very little is said about these days. Um, and I bet that very few of us have heard direct teaching about this particular sin. It's very few like to address it. Uh, quite possibly, most of you would say it's not even really a sin that I particularly struggle with, and very few of you would even regard it as a dangerous threat to the integrity of a gospel church. But it is a sin that many of us overlook that it's not even really on our radar if we talk about Missio Day Church or whatever church that you call home. You, would, you wouldn't even say that. That's a struggle for us. It's not even on your radar. And what, what would be the reason for this oversight? I, I wouldn't say it's because the hardness of our heart or, or because we regard us as possessing a really uh, super spiritual maturity in any kind of way. We would overlook it because we have been deceived into thinking that this sin has no real bearing on us. It's not really relevant to us. It, it, it's a sin that is confined to cultural contexts that are altogether different than us. It's a sin. It's a sin that is dangerous because we are absolutely blind to it. And it's our very own oblivion to this sin that makes it a silent malignancy and oh so deadly. And I suppose we could come up with a bunch of different names for this sin. We could call it apostasy. We could call it uh, infidelity, unfaithfulness. But from our text this morning, we could identify it as a creation of uh, maybe a new term, Jezebelism. Jezebelism. And so you're going, okay, I have no clue what the sin of Jezebelism, because that's a new term that Paul came up with. More simply, the common name for it goes to my friend Jen, idolatry. It is a sin of idolatry. And in the Bible, there is no sin. Hear this, there is no sin more serious than the sin of idolatry. Other, people, uh, other sins are secondary to this sin. It calls in Scripture for the strictest of punishments. It elicits the most serious argument throughout all of Scripture. It prompts for the most extreme measures of avoidance. It is regarded most simply as the ultimate expression of unfaithfulness to our covenant Lord. It is the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. God said on Mount Sinai, here's the first commandment I am giving to my covenant people. You shall have no other gods before me. When the children of Israel were poised to enter into the promised land, they were told to absolutely annihilate all the Canaanite people that were in the land without exception. Why? To avoid contact with idolatry. Do you realize that within the historical literature of the, of the Old Testament, that kings were evaluated as either good or bad solely on the basis as to whether or not they sought to destroy Or promote idolatry? Just look back. Look at every king. And how were they described? As one who promoted or destroyed idolatry. If frequency of mention were the only criteria for the severity of a particular sin to God, then without question, idolatry would head the list. Idolatry. So that begs the question, what is idolatry? Admittedly, when we hear that word, we are, our minds immediately run to its traditional and external manifestations, doesn't it? We think about the people who are maybe living in the jungles of Africa or way over here, over there. They're, they're just these primitive folks. And we immediately think about people who worship a, a stone or this false god. And they can, we see this physical manifestation. We think of the Old Testament people. Man, they worship Baal and they worship Molech. They worship Asherah poles. They worship this god and that god. These things. And they would erect these kind of things. And we think, that is idolatry they are worshiping other gods but doing this but doing this not only limits our definition of what idolatry is it makes it irrelevant to us it does not apply to me because paul in my house i i don't have a little shrine I don't have a little god made out of wood or stone. That's not me. It makes it irrelevant. And it diminishes then the severity by overlooking its significantly more serious internal disposition. And it's a disposition that is endemic to absolutely every person in every culture throughout every period of time. It applies to every person this morning. So if you think it doesn't apply to you, and you've already tuned me out, turn me back on. Because it is applying to you this morning. So what is idolatry? Well, we can define it by asking another question and this is the question what is god martin luther martin luther in his larger catechism his first section was addressing the 10 commandments and he said this you have no other gods the first commandment that is you are to regard me alone as your god what does this mean and how is it to be understood what does to have a God mean? And what is God? He says this. A answer. A God is the term for which, that to which we are to look for all good. And in which we are to find refuge in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one With your whole heart. As I have often said, and we're going, what have you often said? It is the trust and faith of the heart alone that makes both God and an idol. He goes on to say, if your faith and trust are right, then your God is the true one. Conversely, where your trust and faith, your trust is false and wrong. There you do not have the true God. For these two belong together. Faith and God. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say, there is really your God. What is your God? Your God is the one in whom you put all your faith and trust and hope And full reliance on. That is your God. Anything else. Anything else than that. If you put all your faith. And trust and hope. And reliance in Jesus Christ. And what he has provided. And what he is doing in your life. If you do that. You are worshiping the one and true God. The one and only God. You put your faith and trust. In anything else. You are worshipping another God. Little g. Another God. And that, brothers and sisters, is idolatry. In our context, we we have to be ready to admit that it can be something far less obvious. Less obvious in that it might be something more sophisticated or culturally acceptable. It may be another human being. Yes. Maybe even the one you are sitting next to. It may be a recreational pursuit of some sort. It may be an economic ambition. It may be an academic (coughs) achievement. Or it may be a quest for recognition or status. But this issue is still the same. If what is loved trusted and served above all else, is not the one and true living God, then any such devotion is idolatry. It is not just a sin. Hear me say this. It is not just a sin relegated to the unenlightened pagans in the jungles who have yet to experience the benefit of the gospel. It is an ever-present sin. That is everywhere present. It is the common vulnerability. Of people like us. Unsuspecting evangelicals. Unsuspecting evangelicals. Who even attend gospel preaching churches. Every Sunday evangelicals yes evangelicals can be idolaters so why is this adultery that is being spoken about here so reprehensible he's talking about this Jezebel who who has led people to practice sexual immorality why is this so reprehensible to God. Why why is he so upset to the point where he says, "I have given her time to repent and she has not done that. Therefore, what am I going to do? I'm going to cast her onto a bed of pain and suffering and her children are going to die." Why is God so upset with this church? Well, part of it goes to the very character and nature of who God is. Exodus 34 God says, my name is... Do you know what it is? Jealous. My name is jealous, says the Lord. Okay, when we talk about jealousy person to person, we often say, you know what, that's, you really should not be jealous. Because that's, that's sinful. But God's character as a holy God, He says, I am Jealous. That's my name. You can call me jealous. I am a jealous God. He uses this language to illustrate a point that is seen both in the Old Testament and New Testament. He is the husband of his people. God is our husband. And as such, he is desirous, so deeply desirous to protect his people. To protect the intimacy of that covenant relationship. God is—he desires to protect the purity and the relationship and the beauty of that covenant relationship. He has bought us with a prize. He is the husband of his people. He desires to protect us. So we even see all the way back in Genesis when when God says to Adam and Eve that we are to leave our parents and to cleave to one another and become one flesh. Right? God is already giving us images and pictures of. What his relationship with us is to look like. We are to do what? We are to cleave to him. And him alone. As a husband and wife are to leave their families. Not that your families are pagans. Some of them are. But we are to leave and cleave to one another. As God, the husband of his people. Desires us to cleave to him as he has cleaved to us. The problem is our leaving and cleaving, we become one flesh. If you know anything about flesh, flesh is temporal. It's stuck in this time. Scripture also refers to flesh as what? Sinful. We are to destroy the desires of our flesh. But it is a picture of of a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God who, man, you leave and cleave to me and me alone. I am it. I am ultimately the ultimate thing. The ultimate one you are to cleave to and to long for. That is why God hates idolatry. He regards it as an adulterous intrusion into his relationship with people. God hates our idolatry. Because idolatry is the thing that gets in between the cleaving, isn't it? We long for something else. And God hates it, passionately hates it. And if you don't believe it, I encourage you, read the book of Hosea. The whole book of Hosea is about, it's a picture of God's relationship with his people. And the people of Israel, does anybody know the name of the, the woman that Israel is pictured as? What's her name? Gomer. Poor woman is set up for failure from day one. Gomer. She is an adulterous woman. And God is saying this is the picture that I have for you. If you if that's not enough, check out Ezekiel. Check out Jeremiah. God gives these graphic sexual pictures of his relationship with his people. It is deep, it is intimate, and he regards adultery he regards idolatry as an attack on his exclusive rights. To her love. That's why Jesus, it, what Jesus is getting at when he says to the Pharisees and scribes, an adulterous generation, almost an idolatrous generation, asked for a sign. Or when he says to the people, this adulterous and sinful generation, he is speaking about idolatry using the metaphorical uh, language of covenantal unfaithfulness. How does James say it? In James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is the ancient sin of idolatry that now angers the Lord of the church in Thyatira. In this fair field, a poisonous weed, has sprung in this beautiful body. A malignant cancer is sending out its tentacles throughout the whole body. For the church in Thyatira, they were engaging in both spiritual. Physical adultery. But we gotta go back a little bit. We gotta look at how does Jesus address address this early church? He says, These are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes and like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. This is the guy, God, who sees into every heart, into every mind, looks deeply into each and every one of us. He looked deeply. He, he knows as a husband senses something is not right with my wife. There, an intrusion has come into our relationship and God knows as a sovereign god a god who is omniscient who knows all things with eyes of flame i know i know and then his feet are like burnished bronze and this refers back to the book of daniel where these are like feet of judgment so that is how how jesus is describing himself i am the son of god Who has eyes that know? I look deeply, but I'm also the the husband that is jealous and there is judgment. But he goes on to say, Listen, I know your works. And he alludes that these are faithful works. I, I know your love. You are deep lovers. I know your faith. You are faithful people. I know your service. You are those who serve. And I know also that your latter works, the works that you're doing now, are far greater than what you initially started off with. So I I know that. I know that about you. you. You're doing well, but... But I have this against you. There is... A woman in your midst. Her name probably was not Jezebel. But he refers back to an Old Testament story of a woman named Jezebel. And if you know anything about her, she is absolute trouble. It goes back to Kings, 1 Kings 16. And you can see this through King Ahab. Let me, let me just briefly read about King Ahab. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for himself his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. Ahab, the king of Israel, made a grave mistake. Not only was Ahab a lousy, weak-willed king, He made the insanely stupid decision, unfaithful decision to marry a Phoenician woman named Jezebel. Through this marriage and her elevated place in authority in Israel as the queen of Israel, this woman wreaked spiritual havoc throughout the whole land. She attempted to combine the worship of Israel with the worship of the idol Baal. And she did what she good, could do to stamp out the true worship of the one and only God and influenced her weak husband to the extent that is recorded in 1 Kings 16 that he, made, he set up a whole area of worship. She also started killing off all the prophets of God until there were only a hundred times... Ton- hundred left in the days of Elijah. And what did she also do? She installed 450 false prophets. Jezebel undoubtedly was not, in our section today, was not her real name. But she was a real woman in Thyatira who was much like the infamous Jezebel, wife of Ahab. She was Satan's agent to corrupt God's people. She was able to condition the people to synchronize their ways with the world and then to justify those ways. And just as Jezebel in the Old Testament, this woman was leading people To idolatry. And leading people to adultery. Physical and spiritually. The Bible teaches that even true Christians, and we know this, true Christians can fall into sexual immorality. We know that. We know that the Bible also teaches that true Christians can fall into idolatry. It's true here. Both on the sexual immorality and the idolatry, isn't it? We've even had times of confession where we have confessed sins of sexual immorality. Some of you have done that out loud in our, in our context here. But to lead other Christians into false doctrine and immoral living is a very serious sin meriting the most severe punishment. And Jesus said in Matthew six, 5, uh, sorry, 18, verse 6, He said this, Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in Me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Who are these little ones? John refers to the little ones as believers in Jesus Christ. It is better for, for you, if you deceive a follower, a spiritual child of God, into idolatry, to sin, it's better for you just to have this huge, two-ton millstone strung around your neck and they throw you out into the sea. That, that's, that is far better. So we have a jealous God who desires the love of His people. He wants His people. And He deserves our absolute best. We are to worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. The demand of the covenant is for single minded worship of God alone. And again, the image is created in our minds by the word of jealousy is the picture of a lover or a husband who gets angry when someone competes for the heart of his wife, or her heart goes after other lovers. I think about what is God saying to us here. Because Jesus says, listen, I, I have given her time to repent. And she has refused. That, that one is a message for the leadership of the church to be keenly aware of idolatry that is going on within our church. As well as keenly aware of people who may be leading us astray. And to exercise faithful church discipline. And that doesn't mean the immediate, hey, you, you taught that, you're out the door. But it is exercising discipline for the purity of the church. Because you know what? God desires our full attention. We are to cleave to Him as a husband and wife are to cleave to one another. Ah, folks. Get rid of anything that distracts you. Anything that takes your eyes off of Jesus Christ. Get rid of it. And I'm not talking about becoming a holy huddle, because we're still planted in this world. This church is marked as idolatrous. And I pray that we will never be as a whole marked as idolatrous. Though many of us, myself included, am an idolater. This morning I want us to, I need to remind you. I need to remind you that there is hope for idolaters. Because as, as you read through this, it, it, it is, it's rough stuff. It's depressing. And my wife said, said to me last night that she's thankful she's back in the children's ministry. Because this, this is tough stuff. And it feels like you got to have some really thick skin while well, you sit underneath this teaching. Because, man, it's another week of a right and a left and a right and a left. But this is stuff that is to soften our hearts. That raises the awareness of sin in our life. That calls us to our, our husband. To the bride that has purchased us. It, the sin becomes such a stench in our lives that we say, enough. I'm done with idolatry. I'm done with passionate living. I, I'm done with this. I'm done with that. Uh, Jesus, I need you. I, you have purchased me with a price. He has purchased us with a price. I repent. I will not be like Jezebel and her children who have so deeply clung to the things of this world and refuses to repent. I will be different. I will. We'll repent. It's a call in verse 23 to remember when Jesus says, all the churches, by wh- how I exercise my discipline, all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. Our hearts, our minds. You think that just because you've got a thick cranium that God can't get through and see and know your heart and your mind. You're, you've been deceived. He knows your heart and your mind. He knows your deep desires. And your overt expressions of your desire. He knows your hidden sins. But, he says at the end, listen. Let me, let me first remind you of the gospel. The good news. Because we need good news too, don't we? The good news is found in First Corinthians fifteen one through 4 And Paul says to this church, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain... And this is it. Verse 3. For I delivered to you of first importance. Protos is a Greek word. Priority. Of first importance. That which I received. That Christ died for our sins. In accordance to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to. To the scriptures. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Our sins. He has died for our sins. He has received the wrath of God. On our behalf. He has taken away the sins of the world. He He was the perfect sacrifice. For us. He that knew no sin. Became sin for Paul. He that knew no sin. Became sin for Aster. He that knew no sin became sin for Craig. This is a guy, God, who loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son. And as Christians, we participate in his death, don't we? We we die. We're called to die to our sins but not just be dead people. The good news of the gospel is that Christ came and died and calls us to die, but don't stay there. Because Christ did not stay there. Christ, on the third day, He rose again from the dead. And where is He seated? At the right hand of God the Father. I just want to go into my Apostles' Creed right now. And there, from there, he will judge the living and the dead. This is, this is powerful stuff that we too, we die to our sins. We die to our adultery. We die to our idolatry. We die to that. But you know what? We come up alive and more powerful than ever before because sin is now dead Our idolatry is dead. Our adultery is dead. We are alive in Christ. And the same power that raised Christ from the dead is in us. And so that is the absolute good news. The gospel is that we do not have to be idolaters. We do not have to be adulterous people who throw our hearts at the things of this world. You do not need to do more. You do not need to read more. What you need is Jesus. What we need is Jesus and nothing else. Nothing more, nothing less. And as we come to communion, I want you to hear this. We, you, need to repent of our idolatrous ways of our spiritual adultery. We need to rely deeply on the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news. We need to become clean through repenting. We need to stop hiding in the dark, hidden places of our heart that we have for way too long tolerated. Because He sees our ways. There is no hidden spot in your life. He knows. And some of you this morning are just going, thank God, because I'm done with this. I've got this facade of running around with other things. And it has been killing me. It's been killing me. Jesus, this morning, I repent. And here's the hope. At the end, Jesus says, verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. Do you know who the morning star refers to? Jesus. This is Jesus saying, to the one who overcomes, I'm going to give you the morning star. Oh wait, I'm going to give you me. If that does, I, I got chills. Jesus desires to the one who overcomes idolatry, spiritual adultery. The one who overcomes, He promises to give Himself. It, Ephesus, He promises the tree of life. In Smyrna, He pro. Promises the crown of life to Pergamum. He promises admission to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But in Thyatira, he promises himself. He desires, in this beautiful picture of marriage, I desire to give myself to you. I want to give me to you, church. That is his desire. And it is the gift for those who refuse idolatrous compromise. So let me ask you. What is it that you love, trust, and serve above all else? Be honest. What is it that you love, trust, and serve above all else? You can give me the Sunday school answer. That's fine. Jesus But as God searches your hearts, what is it that you truly love, trust, and serve above all else? If you forsake all others and keep yourself only to Christ, you will have Him, says Jesus. Forsake all others. And one day for overcomers we will have the full consummation of everything as we spend absolute eternity in joy and gladness in His presence. The one who has purchased us. It will be life itself. It will be what makes us. Our time with Jesus is what will make heaven, heaven. Because without Jesus, our bridegroom, heaven would be hell. And then Jesus throws everything off. With the last thing he has to say to the church. He who has an ear. them hear what the spirit is saying to the churches what is the spirit saying let's pray